Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I'm unpacking some scholarship. In particular, I'm unpacking the paper titled When Twice as Good Isn't Enough, The Case for Cultural Competence in Computing. And this is written by Nikki Washington. And it's actually one of the papers that Shuchi Grover recommended in last week's episode. As always, you can find a direct link to this paper in the show notes, which can be found in the app that you're listening to this on, simply clicking on the link in the description or by visiting jaredoleary.com, where there's nothing for sale, just a bunch of free content. And when you do visit the show notes, just know that when you click on Nikki Washington's name under the citation, it will send you directly to their Google Scholar profile. And if you click on the paper's title, it'll take you directly to the publication itself, which you can download if you are an ACM member. All right, so let's begin by reading the abstract for this paper. Quote, the commonly documented diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, issues in computing workforce are the direct result of corporate cultures that benefit specific groups and marginalize others. This culture usually begins in undergraduate computing departments where the demographic representation mirrors that of industry. With no formal courses that focus on the non-technical issues affecting marginalized groups and how to address and eradicate them, students are indirectly taught that the current status quo in computing departments and industry is not only acceptable, but also unproblematic. This directly affects students from marginalized groups, as the reasons for attrition are similar in both higher education and industry, as well as faculty, as biased student evaluations directly affect hiring, promotion, and tenure decisions. This position paper presents the need for cultural competence as a required focus for university computing departments nationwide. By improving these issues before students complete baccalaureate computing degrees, companies will have talent pools that better understand the importance and necessity of DEI and also work to ensure they help foster a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment. In addition, more students from marginalized groups will be retained in the major through degree completion. End quote. If I were to summarize this paper into a single sentence, I would say that it unpacks the five elements of cultural competence and the six stages of cultural competence in relation to undergraduate computing programs. Although this paper focuses specifically on undergraduate programs and what university professors can do, I'm going to talk about some of the potential implications in relation to K-12 education. All right, so at the university computing departments, there are now courses related to ethics of computing or ethics in computing. However, Washington states that, quote, the overwhelming majority of these courses focus primarily on the societal and legal impacts of topics such as the internet, privacy, intellectual property, and cybercrime, end quote. And that quote is from page 213. So instead of thinking about the ethics in relation to equity and social justice related issues, instead focusing on like privacy and cybersecurity. So Washington is suggesting that we actually expand beyond this and include course offerings related to equity by specifically focusing on something called cultural competence. All right, so here's a quote from page 213 that kind of explains why this is important. Quote, without direct and intentional inclusion of this topic, including meaningful and impactful discussions on race, gender, intersectionality, bias, discrimination, and their impact on people and technology, then the majority white and Asian male-dominated classes of new computing graduates enter organizations where the established corporate culture favor their beliefs, practices, and identities, end quote. So in other words, if we don't talk about this in the undergraduate level, then graduates are going to go into corporations and industry settings and kind of perpetuate this 
some of the biases related to white and Asian male-dominated cultures. All right, so let's unpack what cultural competence is. So Washington mentions that cultural competence came out of social work and counseling psychology. And here's a quote, an embedded quote on page 214 that kind of summarizes what cultural competence is. Quote, a set of congruent behaviors, attitudes, and policies that come together in a system, agency, or among professionals and enable that system, agency, or those professionals to work effectively in cross-cultural situations. The word culture is used because it implies the integrated pattern of human behavior that includes thoughts, communications, actions, customs, beliefs, values, and institutions of a racial, ethnic, religious, or social group. The word competence is used because it implies having the capacity to function effectively, end quote. That's from page 214. So in this paper and in that definition, culture is used to refer to different social constructs such as race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religious affiliation, etc. That's from page 214. So following this introduction of what cultural competence is, Washington outlines five of the key elements that make up cultural competence. So the first one is valuing diversity, which, quote, means people understand, appreciate, and respect its worth, end quote. Now, an important thing to note about valuing diversity is that Washington points out that, quote, a diverse environment can still lack inclusion, especially when individuals in key positions refuse to address systemic issues such as micro and macroaggressions, bias, and discrimination, which are common in computing and tech environments, end quote. That's from page 214. Now, this is important to note. You will have heard some people in previous interviews and interviews that have not been released yet kind of talking about some of these things in terms of like the micro and macro aggressions or systems of oppression in education that either are designed to or unintentionally cause harm or forms of violence. So we as educators shouldn't just value diversity in terms of like understanding and appreciating it. We also need to be inclusive in our settings. And so some of the previous podcast guests that have been on the show have mentioned they like to have students go out and recruit other students. So that way there's a variety of voices who are sharing the message of what computer science can offer to them in the classes that are available in your school and hopefully reach populations that you as a single individual would not be able to do on your own. Okay, so the second element of cultural competence is cultural self-assessment. So this process is, quote, accurately and exhaustively assessing one's current beliefs against current practices. One may value diversity and still display bias and discriminatory behavior, end quote. So one of the interviews that has not been released yet and will come out later, a guest mentions that while they are actively working on incorporating anti-racist practices in their classroom, they are still unintentionally displaying biases and discriminatory behaviors that can be described as racism. If that sounds alarming, it should be, for one, but two, it is a result of biases that are unconscious that are simply being acknowledged, and this guest is personally working through them, as we all hopefully are. And to further clarify this episode that we'll release a few weeks from now, the guest considers themselves to be a co-conspirator, not just an ally, but someone who is willing to put their body in harm's way to help somebody else. However, they are still acknowledging that they have biases because they are engaging in these self-assessments and realize that sometimes biases and discriminatory behaviors emerge, even when they are actively trying their best to not do that. So something that I encourage for everybody else, and I am also participating in it, 
is that constant cultural self-assessment. Okay, so the third element of cultural competence is management of dynamics of difference. So here's an embedded quote from page 214. Quote, when a system of one culture interacts with a population from another, both may misjudge the other's actions based on learned expectations. End quote. So not only do we need to reflect upon and assess our own cultural biases and understandings, we also need to think about how our understandings and our ways of being in cultures intersect and interact with other cultures in ways that might be unintended or be perceived as problematic. Now, obviously, this is very hard to do. So some of the guests that I have spoken with about similar topics have recommended going into these conversations with humility and willingness to learn and just know that you are going to make mistakes and instead of hiding from those mistakes or denying them to instead stick with it and continue the conversation even when it gets uncomfortable and simply acknowledge how you have unintentionally made somebody feel and actively find ways to work through that and grow from that experience. And I say that as somebody who has unintentionally insulted other people because of cultural differences. It has been uncomfortable, and I have learned from those experiences. Okay, so element four, institutionalization of cultural knowledge. So Washington points out that you can't simply go to like a webinar or a PD session and then suddenly become woke and wow, all of a sudden I know everything that I need to know about a particular culture. It's not going to happen. This needs to be an ongoing process. And it needs to happen over an extended period of time. So this is not even something that you can do in a semester by taking a single course on this. If you are taking a course related to cultural competence and similar topics, yeah, you might learn a lot through that experience, but this is an ongoing thing. And one of the reasons why is because culture is constantly changing and evolving. So we need to stay on top of those changes. So as an example, think of a place that you visited that you've only visited one time and maybe you went there maybe 10, 20 years ago, and if you were to go back today and kind of compare how the place differs in terms of this culture and the ways that people are interacting and the way that the environment is set up, etc., it's likely going to be very different in ways that you might not have predicted. So because culture is constantly changing, we as individuals need to constantly try and continue to learn and grow and adapt by constantly seeking to understand these changes in different cultures. Now, one thing that Washington points out is that we can't become the cultural bears for cultures that we are not a part of. So we need to seek out individuals from different cultures and have them be the main contributors of those conversations when it comes to different questions and concerns about a particular culture. So the final element of cultural competence is adaption to diversity. Now, an example that's given by Washington is that, quote, just as individuals from different cultures have different beliefs and experiences, organizations and individuals should ensure that their cultural competence values, respects, and addresses the needs of all individuals, end quote. That's from page 215. So even though that's the last element, I think it is a very important one. We need to ensure that the things that we are doing as individuals and in the organizations that we work with, that we all reflect a diverse set of needs. Okay, so in the next section, Washington outlines some stages of cultural competence, and there are six stages. The first one is cultural destructiveness. The second one is cultural incapacity. The third one is cultural blindness. The fourth one is cultural precompetence. The fifth one is cultural competence. And the sixth one is cultural proficiency. So let's unpack what each of those are. 
Okay, so the first one, cultural destructiveness. So cultural destructiveness is when your ways of being, your ways of acting and engaging with other cultures are destructive to that culture or to the individuals within a particular culture. So some examples that were given by Washington are homophobia, misogyny, and white supremacy. Those examples are given on page 215. In stage two, in cultural incapacity, this stage has people in it who are not necessarily trying to be destructive, but are unable to actually provide help to marginalized groups. Now, some examples of cultural incapacity include some of the fears that some people have around other cultures and how those can extend into different hiring practices or microaggressions or expectations of other cultures and groups of people. All right, so the third stage is cultural blindness. So this is characterized primarily by assimilation and ignoring different strengths of different cultures. So for example, instead of highlighting and encouraging differences being shared across different cultures, we instead try and homogenize everything by getting marginalized groups to all conform to the dominant culture. So this is equivalent to people who are saying, I don't see color, everyone's the same to me, and the denial that you have bias. Which, by the way, I'll include a link in the show notes to an unconscious bias test that you can take in a variety of different categories to actually learn more about some of the biases that you do have. So, for example, I took a couple of them and found out that I had some biases that I was aware of, as well as some others that I was surprised about. Now, one of the interesting things that's related to this particular stage is there can be a lot of victim blaming in terms of not understanding why some people from different cultures are unable to assimilate or align with the dominant cultures. And success is viewed within this stage as, quote, how closely marginalized groups can approximate middle-class non-minority existence, end quote. That's from page 215. Okay, now we're gonna move on to the more positive side of this continuum or stages. So the fourth stage is cultural pre-competence. So this is the stage where I think a lot of people are in right now in terms of what's going on with learning more and trying to do something in particular related to racism in education and in society. So cultural precompetence involves people who are making intentional efforts uh, from an organizational level. They might be hiring intentionally for diverse perspectives and experiences. However, in this stage, it can stop here with this false sense of accomplishment that Washington describes, or even a tokenism of different cultures or marginalized groups, because it doesn't actually respect and value cultures. It's just learning more and understanding about them, but not necessarily playing to their strengths. In stage five, however, which is called cultural competence, here's a quote from page 215, quote, organizations actively hire unbiased employees constantly work to improve practices and seek the expertise of marginalized groups to better assess how to meet their needs. Many components of this stage include an understanding of the effects of policy on practice and actively working to ensure that enacted policies support a diverse and inclusive environment, end quote. So it's not enough to just learn about different cultures and to be an ally for different cultures. You need to actively reflect upon the different practices and policies that can impact having a diverse and inclusive environment. One of the things that I would argue against though is actively trying to hire unbiased employees. Again, I think it's impossible because we all have these unconscious biases. That being said, I think hiring people who are actively exploring their unconscious biases is something that can definitely be done. 
All right, so the last stage is called cultural proficiency. So this involves organizations who are just constantly trying to find diverse perspectives and experiences and people and are constantly reevaluating what they're doing. Okay, so what does this have to do with computer science education? So the remainder of this paper, Washington kind of outlines some different ways that using cultural competence can impact CS education. So the first outline that Washington gives is on page 216, and it is, quote, appropriately respond to current and projected demographic changes, end quote. So in particular, in this section, Washington describes how the United States is going to be changing demographically over the next few decades in terms of percentage of people by race, percentage of people by ability to speak more than one language, percentage of immigrants, etc. And Washington particularly outlines some of the demographics of race in relation to faculty members and students in computing degrees. And in particular, when speaking of nationwide demographics of students and faculties in computing courses and degree programs, we need to have them align to the demographics of the United States. So the second reason for encouraging cultural competence in computing courses and undergraduate programs is to quote, eliminate long-standing income disparities from diverse backgrounds, end quote. So in particular, Washington points out that computer science majors earn more money than other majors or people with high school degrees, which if we re read between the lines, we can look at this and go, okay, this could be a way of helping elevate people out of poverty or low socioeconomic status. The next rationale that Washington mentions, also on the same page, 216, is, quote, improve technology development to account for differences, end quote. So in particular, Washington mentions that there's a lot of research that talks about biases and related to algorithms and such as fake facial recognition programs or even infrared sensors for hand washing, etc. Some of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes and even some of the upcoming episodes and how having a diverse set of computer scientists in an organization or a company or in a school can help prevent some of those algorithmic biases. So the next rationale is specifically around how there are more jobs available right now than there are qualified people to actually fill them in relation to STEM and computer science in particular. So by broadening our scope of the typical students who kind of go into these programs, we might be able to help fill this gap. And the fifth rationale is, quote, improve retention of students and employees from marginalized groups, end quote. So there have been studies that have demonstrated that students in schools and even students in some organizations have left because they felt like they did not belong in the particular culture. So for example, I've had multiple colleagues and friends who have come to Arizona from other states and they felt like the culture that they are used to and that they love and embody are not represented within the southwest in particular in the phoenix area so they have felt a little out of place and some of them have actually left the valley because of this so having a more diverse set of cultures within the organization or the school or the company might help out with retention and the final rationale is that there might result in a decrease in lawsuits related to discrimination complaints Okay, so Washington concludes this section by basically saying, look, if we don't talk about this stuff in our undergraduate classes, then when they go into industry setting and start working as CS professionals, then they're likely not going to question some of the expectations and norms set by some of the more dominant cultures that exist within industry settings. So Washington mentions a course called Race, Gender, and Computing. 
And it's broken down into three parts in particular. And again, this is an undergraduate course, and I'm gonna unpack here in a moment, what could this look like in elementary setting? So the first part was just kind of getting some of the basics of terminology related to, quote, race, ethnicity, bias, microaggressions, marginalization, and historically disenfranchised groups through various articles, publications, and current events related to the topics, end quote. That's from page 217. The next part of this course was to then have students focus on biases as they present themselves in technology. As I mentioned, like some of the facial recognition bias and infrared biases with hand washing stations, things like that. And then the final portion of this course involves a presentation of a reflection of things that were learned over the course of the semester. All right, so Washington in the conclusion points out that, quote, regardless of institution type, the 3C program should be required for all computing undergraduates nationwide, end quote. That's from page 218. All right, so I think this is very important to note because just because we might be working in locations where the majority of the students who are there are from marginalized groups, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about this. So regardless of what school you're in, we need to be engaging with this. So this leads to some of my lingering questions. So in each one of these unpacking scholarship episodes, I like to kind of share some of the questions or thoughts that I had after reading a particular paper, which I really enjoyed this paper, and I hope you go and read it. But here's one of my first questions. So how might K-12 CS educators adapt the structure of the race, gender, and computing course? So in particular, what kind of actionable project could apply understandings at the culmination of the course? So I like the idea of like exploring some of the topics in terms of unpacking what does a microaggression mean, what does a marginalization mean, etc., and learning more about that. Then I really like the part two where it kind of situates those into industry-related stuff, or in the K-12 setting, it could just simply be situating it into concepts and practices that are part of the computer science standards that you are using in your school. And then part three, I like that it's a reflection on understandings and kind of sharing how your understandings have maybe changed over time after learning more about the different terminology and learning about how such forms of oppression or violence exist in technology, in the design of technology. But I think a part four, in particular for K-12 settings, could be, okay, now that you've reflected on this, what can you actively do to help improve people's lives, either in your own life or the lives of other people in your community, or beyond that. So while I think it is definitely important to include a course like this at the undergraduate level for anyone who's intending on getting a degree in computer science, I honestly think that we could integrate these practices and ways of unpacking systems of oppression and just learning how to better understand and elevate different cultures and perspectives and ways of being. All this can be done within a K-12 setting and in any kind of classroom. Doesn't have to just be computer science. So my challenge to all the other K-12 CS educators and even the undergraduate and graduate researchers out there is try and find some ways that you can incorporate cultural competence in the classrooms that you're working with. Or even what I talked about two weeks ago, culturally relevant pedagogy, which if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. Or even some of the other concepts that are going to come up in future interviews, such as critical race theory, and better understanding double consciousness, etc. Which, if you don't know those terms, don't worry. Future interview is going to talk about that. Now, the last question related to this article that I have is, how do the enrollment demographics for 2020 CS programs differ from a few years ago? And the reason why I asked is because there has been a huge push for K-12 CS initiatives 
in the last several years. And this has push has been on related to CS for all, trying to get everybody into computing. But I'm wondering, have the percentages of incoming freshmen in computer science programs changed as a result of this? So we've had several years now where kids have had the opportunity, or at least the increased opportunity, to learn computer science. And across the board, are we seeing any changes in enrollment? And if so, why? And if not, why? All right, so those are just kind of main questions that I was having after reading through this paper, which again, I highly recommend you check out. So if you are a member of ACM, go into the show notes and you can click right on the title of this paper and it will take you directly to it and you can download the PDF to read it. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Stay tuned next week for another interview and then two weeks from now, we're going to have another Unpacking Scholarship episode. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy and I hope you are having a wonderful week.